Uh, today we have uh, Dr. Colburn. Dr. Colburn, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, thanks, Rick. I'm Dr. Belden Coburn. I'm an assistant professor of Indigenous Studies and Political Science at the University of Ottawa in Ontario, Canada, uh, in the Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies. Uh, I am, I am Algonquin. Uh, my institute sits on my home territory. I have uh, a doctorate in political science from Queen's University and a background in economics and political science. And I mostly do work um, on Indigenous identity uh, some of the more material sort of colonial issues with contestations with the state up here in Canada. I'm familiar with a little bit of what goes on with the uh, the colonial state in the U.S. and other Indigenous peoples and their struggles there. So I'm predominantly more Canadian-centric in, in terms of my orientation. But um, uh, yeah, just Algonquin and one of the sort of news pegs that Rick invited me on was about the ongoing sort of uh, controversies around Indigenous identity, the enrollment and registration of fake Algonquins for the purpose of what is going to be modern treaty. So um, thanks, Rick, for having me. Thank you for having for coming on. And um, can you describe the situation? Because I read an article that said that non-natives were, were enrolled if that's the proper term enrolled yeah. and in you know a, this community but then it was forged or you know that it was like forged that some ancestor uh, you know was not mm -hmm. was native but really wasn't native can you describe the situation right so i'll tell you about the situation what it is today and then there's a little bit of a history because it goes back a good 20 years for that but today in the past six seven months or so it sort of the findings of what I've been looking for going through church archives was the origins of a mysterious letter from 1845, June 26, 1845. It's dated by a priest uh, sent to the archbishop in Montreal. Apparently they're on Algonquin territory at that time, and they're hiding out on an island in Algonquin territory. And he stumbles across a guy hiding out with the Algonquins and his name is Thomas Lagarde. And he says he's Algonquin. Now that doesn't really mean a whole lot, but in 2021, we are about two years away from concluding almost 40 years of a modern treaty. So 30 years of that, we started formal negotiations with the British crown or well, the Canadian crown, as it were, um, the state for 36,000 square kilometers. Um, most of that the crown is going to take and they're going to leave us with about 476 kilometers, square kilometers anyways. So I, I don't know what that translates into square miles or whatnot, but it's a, it's a very large portion. And there are about 8,600 people that would be, that to use American terminology, enrolled as Algonquins of Ontario. Now that list has ballooned in the last 20 years because when we first started the claim accepted by the crown, when they said, yes, the Algonquin had not extinguished their territorial title and ceded it to the crown. Uh, this was in March, 1983 from my little sort of community. There are 10 Algonquin first nations, like our bands, our tribal councils or whatnot, 
if I, if I wanted to extend the analogy to our American friends, that uh, we are in the province of Ontario. We're the only one out of the 10 Algonquins. The rest are on the uh, in the province of Quebec, and Quebec was not interested in talking about a, a treaty. Quebec believes that they own all the territory, so they don't have to get into treaties. But the provincial crown in Ontario said, yes, we got to talk about this because we're really, we really want to like get your title. And it wasn't really about the, about us seeding title. It was about recognition. Anyways, by the year 2000, my little tiny sort of first nation in Ontario, the Algonquins of Pickwocknagon, people started coming out of the woodwork and claiming to be Algonquin and solely for the purpose of the modern treaty that they would become beneficiaries. Now, there's nothing really beneficial about the treaty. It's just that some people thought, maybe if I'm part of this treaty, I'll get certain rights from the crown. I'll be recognized as, as a native. And that's not really the case because at the end of the day, this the only federally recognized indigenous peoples will still be us from my little community community but now there's a list of people who are pretending to be algonquin or claim to be algonquin with mysterious ancestry and about one quarter of them stem from this one mysterious letter and i'd been on the hunt for that letter for a good five or six years so it's um i don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that rick um, you had mentioned that you had read the stories in um, our national broadcaster, CBC. Yeah, I, I, I read it. I read them and, you know, it brought me back to, you know, just stories I hear of friends that work in enrollment from different you know, Native communities in the U.S. And even, I, I, you know, I shared a story with I, sh- I shared the story with you before the recording, but I'll share it here during the recording. Um, I had a friend that grew up in Oklahoma. He's not Native. And um, he told me when they're graduating high school that everybody that was not native applied to enroll as many tribes, the local tribes as possible to see if they can get in and, you know, try to get benefits like college money or whatever, you know, later on in life. So to me, it's, it's like that. It's like this, like push to be accepted as, uh, as native, which I, I don't understand. Like, do you, is it like a, 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 a move to innocence, you know, or is it some other like personal, you know, like drive, like it's like, you know, some fantasy, you know, I, I don't know. So, so, you know, you, you said that you don't, there was no benefit to it. So I, I don't understand the, the drive to, you know, um, try to get enrolled, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it really exploded um, the numbers anyways, and the control over the treaty negotiations were stripped from my community. So we had the, the treaty negotiation office in 2000. We walked away from the, the treaty negotiations in 2000 to 2004. And all of a sudden, an organization, a sort of corporate body takes it over, carries it on with the crown and saying, we're a bunch of Algonquins. We're going to call ourselves the Algonquins of Ontario. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that organization. How did that come about? So uh, that's also really strange, too, because they start creating um, sort of fake communities. And what what they've been called in my, my First Nation, we call them the pop-up communities or the cyber communities because they don't exist anywhere other than, say, a Facebook page or 
a uh, website that they've kind of now formalized to give themselves some legitimacy. Like they, they, they will call themselves the Bonachere Algonquin First Nation. And there's really no territory. And most of those people don't know each other. They just kind of claim to be Algonquin, have signed a piece of paper and have looked through archives to try to find an ancestor. And some of them are from, you know, the 1600s, really ambiguous ones too. So ones that they can't say one way or the other, that they are Algonquin, they might think that they lived amongst the Algonquin, but it's it could be as little as a church document from a church from a, a priest or his parish and wrote down uh mary saint germain was baptized on august 20th 1643 and they happened to leave the race section blank because they still took down race they'd be like white french or french canadian or what have you and if they left it blank that was enough evidence for some people to say well, if they left it blank, it was probably because they were native. They were probably Algonquin, and therefore I can claim it. So they fought really hard for very tenuous, uh, spurious claims to call themselves Algonquin, set themselves up with a Facebook page, incorporated, and started getting people on this big sort of list that's now 8,600 people, and it's solely for the purpose of the treaty negotiations they don't have any rights outside of that unlike myself as um as a status indian under our indian act our federal registry we've known that we were indian from the time we were born and um it sort of explodes in the early 2000s when when my community walks away because we're like who are these people and now they've diluted the sort of votes that we have around the negotiation table with the crown so there may be um there's now 10 communities mine is the only federally recognized the other ones are only recognized for this purpose and they show up in their negotiation representatives and they can outvote our community now and they're charging forward with extinguishing our rights uh basically giving away what would be well well they're going to leave us with 1.3 percent of our territory and there's there's a dollar amount attached to it now, That's which scary. yeah yeah no it's very scary. It was, imagine if your neighbors moved into your house and started saying, you know what, we're going to give away ninety eight point seven percent of everything that you have, and you'd say, well wait a second, how does that work? But that's what they're doing, and um, it, it also excludes the legitimate Algonquins who live on the Quebec side of the territory. So that's just an artificial border that the the colonial crown put through our territory. So we never created these provinces. The border between them was imposed upon us. They're excluding from negotiations any Algonquins that live on the Quebec side, even though territorial title is vested in the nation and they're all part of the same Algonquin nation. Um, so it's, it's anti-democratic. It's having a rigged process it's having people from outside have foreign influence on how we constitute ourselves, how we dispose of our territory and modify our rights and titles. So it's, it's, it's actually quite awful and we're getting very nervous. So in May, all the Algonquins of Pickwaktagon once again, stepped away from negotiation tables and we're starting to get very nervous. And at the same time, I'm stumbling upon the evidence 
that there was actually deceit and fraud behind the enrollment of thousands. So this one sort of Thomas Lagarde is, you know, we had spoke about in the CBC article is we had located original documents going through the archives in the churches in Montreal uh, that show that the document was forged by somebody who had a lot to gain because the descendants, the number is now listed at just slightly over 2000. So 2000 out of 8,650 people enrolled. It's extraordinary. And they're voting overwhelmingly to give away everything because my community had a referendum in 2016 about the legitimacy of this whole process and about 87% of the community in Algonquins of Pickwaknagon voted said that this is a bad deal because that at that time we actually have the framework for the treaty which is a couple hundred pages what we uh, created was an agreement in principle of basically what will become the treaty and when we saw that we were like there are people sitting around the table who claim to be an Algonquin who are telling the crown take it all take it all yeah okay but as i said earlier there's a dollar figure attached and people don't understand what that means because now we're approaching 900 million dollars some people might think that we're all going to get an individual payout like what some uh claims call a per capita so everyone thinks that they're going to get a a piece of that pie individually that the crown is going to write us all a check individually. That's not at all the case. What they're going to do is create something called an Algonquin economic development uh, fund, which is basically this, you know, capitalist economic development agency where they will use the rest of the territory that the crown is going to seize for economic development. And, um, if most people don't recognize that the crown every year through their budgeting already allocates that amount of money. So it just kind of looks like, you know what, we were going to pave over the road in front of your house. Um, but now we're going to call it, um, sweetening the deal. If, if you want to buy your house, like if a real estate agent was trying to sell you a house these days and yeah. said, look at all the nice house, the, uh, the lawn is nice. You know what? We're going to throw in. We're going to throw in a freshly paved street too. It looks a little bit rough, but it's like, well, you're not doing that. You were going to do that anyways. And somebody outside was going to do that anyways. They're like, yeah, but we're going to just kind of take credit for it. So what they're doing is just their annual economic allocations anyways. And nobody's going to personally benefit from it. Um, but um, that's, that's, uh, that's part of the story, but when we walked away, sorry, Rick, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. So when we walked away in 2000, when people started coming out of the woodwork, we were looking at these people that would say, I have an ancestor from 1807 and he happens to be Algonquin and people in my community were sitting around and were like, no, that's not quite how it works really. And I mean, there's, there's questions about how, remote these people can be to create community and what's their right i was gonna ask you about that yeah Um, because you know i i I deal with this too when i talk about you know 
indigeneity in Mexico or within the Chicano community. So people, Mexicans will say, hey, I have a, a, a root ancestor in 16, 1700s, 1800s, that's indigenous. I have the right now to culture, to to you know to community when you know for you know generations they have you know their family hasn't been in this community so can this can you describe why you know uh, that's dangerous and you know at the same time you know these people are really aggressive like they're super aggressive and they will start calling native people names like uh gatekeepers you know and saying they're that the, the decolonial police, you know, equating yeah. equating native people to you know to to the police is to me is disgusting. You it know? is, yeah. But you know, and and they'll say these these things. They'll, they'll say stuff like, "Oh, that's toxic indigeneity." I'm like, yeah. what? Like the, the mental gymnastics these people do just to so they can fit in, in you know, these aggressive ways. Can you just talk about like your experiences with that and why that's wrong? You know, right. Yeah. So the reframing of themselves as victims when, um, you know, when you go back 12 generations and uh, you have 4,096 ancestors, how, what, what is that one ancestor, the root ancestor that they're claiming is their link to your nation? It's so magical about it. Like what, how does that kind of override the rest of your colonial settler background and the violence that it's done? So you mentioned a little bit about, is this some sort of move to innocence? It's well, you know, it launders their guilt and gets to say, you know what, despite 99.9% .9 of myself having a heritage and ancestry that was probably violent settler colonial, I'm going to side with the one magical one and claim that as like the most dominant, like it's almost hegemonic in my view is like the only one that actually counts is the indigenous one. Can't even tell you if I, you know, if they are actually indigenous because record keeping in the 17th century was, you know, wildly inaccurate and so rudimentary that it's almost untrustworthy. I wasn't even alive when they were alive or even anyone that I was alive with was alive with them. So what sort of transmission could there be? And, and again, you start saying, well, you've used what is de facto blood quantum to come in the back door here. When I'm coming here and checking your work, why do I have to jump through a million different hoops to get registered in order to, you know, preserve my, uh, my legal heritage and constitutional heritage and, and speaking of constitution of our own nations like through our own political institutions and to be recognized by the crown, but you can just kind of walk in with, with whatever you want and then start flinging names at me. Like I'm, I'm laterally violent or something and that I'm i uh, I'm a colonized indigenous person for, for merely checking their work because, you know, I don't believe that we should reduce ourselves to a race as, as people of a nation, we should be accepting, but when they start using the, the colonizers own calculus i'm going to call them out on that but um for some reason they call themselves the victims and they're like there you go again using the blood quantum it's like but that's what you used yeah and that's what i'm kind of yeah i find that weird that they um they they will you know paint themselves as the victim you know mm -hmm. and then just just do all these weird nonsense and 
and and then they'll say stuff like we're not trying to hinder indigenous sovereignty but everything everything they're doing is hindering our sovereignty right right and, mm -hmm. and i tell I tell people like like if you're part of the community like you know if it's you know, community members tell you they'll speak their voices, but these people come in and they shout. And if anybody disagrees with them, like they would throw a tantrum. But how's that being part of a community if you disregard, disregard everybody, everybody that disagrees with you? You can't do that. That's not how community works, you know? Yeah, no, and, and it's, it's very violent settlerism. It's just of, of them coming in, inserting, asserting some sort of entitlements and then eking out one of the old antiquated sort of you know forms of membership that they've imposed upon us and, and pulling it out the card on that and it's, um you know yeah it's very disrespectful but it's also and this is like the cautionary tale of what's happening to the algonquin here on on the ontario side is that they are giving away everything like they had no skin in the game as my community saying is that these people who weren't Algonquin to show up with at the first place, probably around 2000, when they started to overwhelm us, uh, you know, it wasn't theirs to give away in the first place. So they're not losing anything. Whereas, you know, many people in my community and across the Algonquin nation, because the Algonquins on the Quebec side are dying because they are just like angry. They're, they say, we actually have rights and title in that territory. So one example is um, one of the Algonquin First Nations that lives close to the Algonquin or the Ontario-Quebec border. During these treaty negotiations that was instituted in the early 90s and still goes on, it was just called an interim uh, agreement, basically, and it was on hunting in our territory. So something that all the Algonquins have done for, uh, you know, good five, 6,000 years on our territory to sustain ourselves. And we understood that uh, we moved throughout uh, our territory like we had mobility freedom and we can hunt as we want they're now prohibited from crossing the quebec border into ontario which is an artificial border from our standpoint to hunt and now on the ontario side we uh it's heavily regulated so you have to i don't know if you're familiar or if any other indigenous nations in the united states or mexico have to do this is um for conservation purposes is that if we want to hunt moose uh, and other animals, um, there are basically lottery draws for uh, hunting tags. So we give out a number for the cows, you know, the female moose and the bulls. Uh, and there are these little other communities of non-Algonquins, and there's nine of them, and they're getting an allocation of the hunting tags. So every time, you know, you shoot a moose, you got to tag them, um, put like a little you know, it's about the size of a credit card that you tag them on, on the, uh, the ear or the antlers of the, uh, the moose or what have you and, and report it to whatever provincial ministry it is, but they get to hunt and are, and the Quebec Algonquin are like, so we're no longer allowed to move through our territory where we still have rights and title presumptively. And we can't even go in and uh, hunt for food because they still do it. I, you know, I love eating moose. Um, Put it in stew, make moose burgers, Indian tacos with moose, the best, but that was good. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's this big settler culture um, that is, uh, you know, they, they like to hunt for sport. Like they'll toss away half the moose anyways. And like, they'll disrespect 
the remains of a moose they'll be like you know what i just want this the trophy i just want the head uh whereas uh um the other algonquin yeah are, are restricted so they gave away their rights they've restricted their sovereignty like the the rights to you know move through and exercise rights within their jurisdiction a territorially bound jurisdiction of the algonquin so they it, it is it's a cautionary tale for a lot of other people that these people are coming out of the woodwork to claim that magical ancestor and it overrides legitimate indigenous peoples and their rights and title especially yeah. when they're, they're going to give away the vast majority of our territory so i i can't uh, do the math really quickly of converting square kilometers to square miles um but they're going to give away 35,500 square kilometers and leave us with 476 square kilometers. And, um, and that's a pittance really. And it's really undesirable territory too. And it's not in one piece it's in 220 different parcels spread throughout. So, you know, there's um, patches, there's like 12 acres out in the middle of nowhere. That's inaccessible. Um, I mean, it's all ours, but you know, it's unserviced, undesirable real estate that the crown says, yeah, just give it to the Indians. So can I, can I ask, so is there like a law, is, is there going to be a lawsuit against AOO or is there going to be some kind of investigation, further investigation, or is this going to move forward? Well, you know, I understand that the Quebec Algonquins are gearing up to and, and this is, it's going to be expensive for them because, well, we're, we're not rich um, by any stretch of the imagination. We don't, we don't get supported in this way to bring lawsuits against the crown, but they're going to have to file an injunction and probably challenge everything all the way from the lower courts, all the way probably up to the Supreme Court of Canada saying you can't actually exclude legitimate Algonquin on the Quebec side. And uh as for the frauds we we are challenging them now so our community stepped away and suspended our participation in the negotiations of the treaty and it's been going on since may it was initially three months the story the bigger story comes out in the summer and that's where i had been working with cbc and saying you know something really wild is underway here because uh a friend of mine who is another professor, a history professor, his wife is indigenous. And when they had kids, he decided to do their sort of genealogy to find out she's indigenous from, uh, from another Anishinaabe nation up in Northwestern Ontario, not related. But when he was going through genealogical boards, there was this one ancestor, this Thomas Lagarde, a Frenchman from the 1800s. And he said, people were using him to claim to be Algonquin. And he said, I put together his genealogy and, and I had done it independently this year and, and the same with um, a very close colleague that's working with me and we're both contracted by my band. I, I don't know if um, you know him, but I'm, I'm sure your listeners do is Daryl LaRue up yeah. here. And I had him on the wrote, podcast. Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, so we're both jointly doing this and examining all these so-called rude ancestors that are being used to claim this is that um, we've suspended our participation in the treaty until we clean this up. And I believe our band's lawyers have sent a notice to the AOO saying there's something, there's something really wrong here. And we're now considering all of our legal interests and rights and privileges and what we have. And um, 
so we have uh we have community meetings we're on round four now because the membership in the algonquins of pickwaknagon are up in arms and saying no 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 we knew this was a bad deal we didn't know that there was fraud and deceit behind this that people were forging documents to claim to be algonquin like forging letters between a priest and an archbishop from the 1800s for god's sakes forging a a birth baptismal certificate from 1807 at uh, the church that um that there the people who aren't legitimately just want to do it for the reason that they might think they might be a beneficiary of some sort and they're not going to get anything out of it but they're going to give away our rights and title that sounds real disturbing it is yeah. and it's and it's like your your friend that you said like in oklahoma is people start shaking the the ancestor tree seeing who falls out scouring the house going through any kind of records and this is what shocked me and it was a little bit disturbing is because in 2011 i'm sitting at my home and i get um a big package from the algonquins of ontario and it's got a list of uh at that point there's 5700 names on it and it shows their root ancestors incidentally anyone that's from my community we are listed as our own root ancestor so our, our, our closest living or, or our closest ancestor that was last algonquin is ourselves but these people are having i'm looking through it and i'm starting to see people's names from say high school and i'm i'm not that far out of at high school at that point i'm maybe only uh, 10 or 12 years but i'm seeing names of people who hated the algonquin growing up who called us you know every kind of slur you can think of who wouldn't say anything good about the algonquin like the kids that came from the res who were on the school playground they hated us and they had nothing good to say about us but all of a sudden they're on this algonquins of ontario treaty you know eligible voters list and i'm i'm, I'm i was fucking appalled can I ask what what do you think drives that? I mean, we, I know I asked that before because I feel like yeah. with the internet, people more people are driving to find, especially with DNA tests, this ancestry yeah. DNA test. Mm -hmm. More and more people are trying to find, you know, their their you know ancestry, whatever and whatever that means, you know, mm -hmm. to them. And now, you know, I don't know if there was that. I don't know if you remember there was a news article. I'm pretty sure it came out of Canada where some some person swabbed their dog's mouth. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. and it came back to be like in part of indigenous, part native. And I was like, yeah. that's the most racist shit I've ever heard, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know, so like it's like pretty much anybody that takes these tests, in my point of view, comes back indigenous. So it's like, I don't know if there's some conspiracy. I'm not trying to make a conspiracy here, but to me, it's weird that everybody it comes back as like indigenous, but like you know with these tests because i have people ask me too and they've been asking me i from, from these from the the start of these tests coming out hey you know hey rick uh my test say i'm indigenous how do i find my my you know my community at first i was like i don't, I don't even know how to answer that yeah right and then next it was like and then you know people like kim Tauber start coming out with you know her book native american dna and you know more and more natives are speaking out against it but, you know, I feel like the Internet drives these like fantasies, you know, I don't know if you, you know your perspective on this, but these fantasies. And then, you know, with more and more people getting political, 
I don't know, like if people are trying to wash away their sins with, you know, as, as with an indigenous mask. I don't know. So I, I feel like. No, you know, I get you. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's hard because, you know, I, I had Daryl LaRoe on here. I had Kim Talbear on here. I had uh, Jacqueline Keeler on here. Mm-hmm. And we I keep talking about this subject on the podcast and people still don't understand you know, the dangers of our sovereignty. So, you know, pe- people say, hey, I'm not claiming your tribe. Why do you care? I'm not, I'm not infringing your sovereignty. But why, like, why does, can you describe why that's still dangerous? I mean, obviously with this situation, it's dangerous. They're giving away land that's not mm-hmm. theirs, you know, and they're right. pretending, you know, but I, I don't know. You want to put your thoughts into this? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I've started to think about it and I don't have a background in psychology. My background in, in economics was a little bit around um, human behavior and normally in, in, you know, what we re- reduce to economic behavior, any kind of like decision making, rational uh, public choice theory. And in political science, the only time I ever talked a little bit about psychology was in, say, voting behavior. But, you know, I've had these discussions recently with other Indigenous scholars who, you know, we roll our eyes at these people that are coming out of the woodwork these days is that, is this part of this cultural zeitgeist that after, you know, 10 or 15 years, and I, I'm not too sure what it's like down in your neck of the woods, but in Canada, we've had two big sort of commissions and inquiries and a, and a lot of resistance in the early 2010s. We had the Idle No More movement. And we did a lot of work in the last 10 years to kind of revive what it, what it subsided, I guess, from Red Power was breathing a lot of more, a lot more life back into sort of native pride and finding allies. And this is sort of where, you know, allies uh, go wrong and are bad is that, you know, they start getting a little bit close and familiar and it's a little bit unwarranted in some cases and and where it becomes unwarranted is where it transforms and and again i'm not a psychologist but i start seeing the behavior of they fetishize us now right there they're they're like you know i I i really love indigenous people it's not a it's not a negative identity anymore like they're not dirty people i i love them man i really want to be one does that not strike you, Rick, as, as, you know, a little bit creepy is fetishizing that I agree. When, no, when no one's looking, maybe I'll start going to powwows. And, it, and, and if I haven't really made myself out to be too hardcore settler, maybe I can slide over and start ambiguously calling myself indigenous and, and they'll buy it. I heard that term. I, I, I'm ambiguous. I'm like, what's that mean? <laughs> yeah. you know like it's the weirdest thing in the world you know like it's like i i'm a i i have a white mom but i have an indigenous ancestor and i have ambiguous features like like mm-hmm. spaniards have ambiguous features I, i'm yeah. a spaniard with that that was as dark as me you know like is he ambiguous no he's 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 a spaniard you know no I, the, fe- I, the fetishization rick what, what what's your reaction to to that do you th- do you think there's some people who just kind of treat us as an object and it's sort of the settler gaze it's just like i look upon them as something um yeah as they fetishize well yeah i that's part of it and i think you know is the the article decolonization style metaphor is it has a really good it goes to a lot of stuff like uh yeah settler uh you know um move to innocence and it has like the adoption fantasies you know and Mm -hmm. i i really think um 
it's hard because like I, I always tell people, you know, we are fighting against seller colonization. At the same time, we are fighting against regular people that are, you know, impersonating us. And yeah. then, and then like throwing asinine, like, I love capitalism. They'll say stuff like that. Like, oh, yeah. I love capitalism. There's nothing wrong with that. Why can't we be indigenous and have capitalism? While we have, you know, indigenous scholars that are talking about the dangers of capitalism and what it has done to our communities. These people mm -hmm. are trying to undo that. You know, these people yeah. are mm -hmm. the same people that um, will disregard native scholars like Kim Talbert. Like that yeah. has been doing this for a long time and yeah. think they have figured it out in two months. Like I will give an example. There's like this weird quote unquote indigenous podcast that, you know, one of their hosts took a DNA test this, this January and found out that he could maybe be native, did a little bit of digging to a root ancestor, you know, uh, and started a podcast, you know, took the, took the, the DNA test in January, started a podcast in in, in uh, March and, you know, dug for root, root ancestor and found some ancestor from like 200 years ago in Mexico, contacted a tribe in Mexico, told them some mental gymnastics, and he's, <laughs> he's flying there to be accepted as one of them. How dangerous is that? You know, like right. this, this guy's family has not been part of the community for hundreds of years. And now mm -hmm. he's flying there. And it's at the same time, he's, you know, trash talking native scholars, trash talking, you know, having people harass native, you know, activists, native and other, you know, native people. And it's like, how would your community feel knowing that you're doing this though? You know? Yeah. I, so if, if it, you are, yeah, sorry. If, even if he is native, if, if, if you know, like if he was native, how dare you, you know, and I, I think uh, I saw a panel where Kim Tauber was there and she said, I have nothing against people that are trying to reconnect, but maybe you should sit down and just learn, you know, and, and from people that have been doing this for, for, for a while, you know, right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, and I, I talk about this within the Mexican, within the Chicano community. That's my community too. You know, I'm Comanche and I'm also Mexican. And I, I, I talk about how that there is a flood of like pages telling people like you are indigenous. I don't know. It's, maybe it's different in Canada because you know non-native Canadians are, are are white, but you know Mexicans are brown and mm -hmm. and you know. But I, I talk about the whole history of that. White, you know, brown people migrated into Mexico that were not native and Mexicans and Chicanos don't listen to me. They, they're just like, I don't care. I'm going, I'm going to, you know, create a community online, you know, cyber communities. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and learn random cultural things from different tribes, start a, a, a tribe. I had a, a lady, I'm in San Antonio and people asked me to sit down with her and I did. And I asked, why do you do why you do? I want to know why you do what do you, what you do. You know what she was doing, Aztec dancing. And she said, my goal is to assimilate all natives into Aztec culture and Aztec language. I was like, that's dangerous. You know, <laughs> what, you do, what you're saying is that and she admitted too at the same time that she didn't know if she was native. Right. So yeah. I was like, what you're doing is seller colonization through a fake native mask, right? Mm -hmm. And she, and she, you know, still, still doing it to this day, you know, yeah. <laughs> and these people, 
never stop. And no matter what you tell them, no matter if you you get them to admit that they don't know, you don't they, they just don't stop. And to me, that's dangerous because it's like this colonizer mentality is like I have to I have to wash my you know keep washing my hands and keep washing my hands. And it's like just please just step away. And they they, they don't. And to me, it's scary, you know. Right. So like the centering of themselves. So yeah, just like uh, uh, Dr. Tallbear, you know, points out is there isn't really anything humble about them. And, and, and I think what you're kind of alluding to when we're talking about the psychology behind them of them fetishizing us, but also the narcissism of them beginning to talk over us and for us, I think there's, you know, if you just discovered yesterday that you might have an ancestor, well, one that doesn't make you a part of the political community um, they use race and in very few places around the world, you know, equate their race as part of the political community, like our, our citizenship uh, is like them to get in. And now they can speak for us and about us and start giving things away. And usually they're not, you know, doing any good, but um, they're not sitting back to learn. Uh, I couldn't imagine going through my ancestry and all of a sudden finding say a Swedish ancestor from, you know, 1580 and being like, you know what? Wow. I always felt that I was Swedish. I'm going to fly over to Sweden and I'm going to tell them what's up and what's the score, man. I'm going to, yeah, I, geez, I'm part of them and they've been missing out that, you know, I'm so important and I'm going to tell them, I'm going to start rearranging their lives but um, when you're talking about like, you know, the other one, and it's sort of the fetishists who really try to dominate our depiction and our public representations, like it becomes a, you know, a fucking parody. It's a caricature of us. We're standing around and we're watching idiots act like clowns. They go to, you know, they try to hold their sort of urban powwows or whatnot. And they go to the dollar store to, you know, buy some feathers or something. And they, you know, they're dancing like idiots and they're saying, you know, and other settlers are coming to wash the spectacle and say, oh, I, you know, I took in some legitimate, some authentic indigenous culture this week. I went down to the power. I was like, no, you did not. <laughs> that is not us. Like, you know, uh, up here in Canada, we've we, even over the summer where, you know, there's a little bit of fallout from these, you know, pretendians, especially at Queen's University. And we haven't touched on this yet, but you mentioned about post-secondary education is the representations that they kind of make as legitimate intellectual authorities that um, um, there's a little bit of a hiring spree on in Canada of trying to bring in indigenous peoples into the professoriates, uh, be professors when they've been historically underrepresented and everyone is now a box checker. They are going out and they're bullshitting. We've had, you know, last week on another CBC article, when you got in touch with me, there was another scholar on there who had a research chair, no less, who said that they were Algonquin. They are not. Um, and, you know, she mentions it and she's like, if it turns out I'm not Algonquin, then I'm not Algonquin. But she really dug in her heels and was really, uh, you know, appallingly belligerent and ignorant about it. It was just, it was basically like, you know, but fuck you, Algonquins. I'm still going to call myself Algonquin. Is this the one from last week? The or one this... from last week. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, her name <laughs> is Michelle Kupal, and she claims yeah. to be from one of the pop-up communities that uh, is called the Bonashare Algonquin First Nation. Now, they don't have a territorial base or anything. They only exist as a website. And it's for people 
and and she descends from the forged kind of deceitful individual one of the many that are now on this root ancestor list that the algonquins of ontario relies upon for the modern treaty that uh myself and and dr larue are going through with a fine-tooth comb is uh yeah she you know she was basically like you know what um i'm telling everyone i'm algonquin even though not even a hint or a, a single ounce of her is is algonquin let alone indigenous and um making herself viewed as uh you know she's not widely cited or known anyways but you know some of the others that uh, that were especially at queen's university one of the bigger universities and post-secondary education institutes up in canada uh, you know, there was a handful of them that were called out in the news this year. So there, there is a pushback up here. I know I've talked to some of my friends down in the U.S. and they're like, I don't know how you guys are doing it up in Canada. You're finally getting these places yeah. where like it is rampant down in the United States. So it's really bad here. Oh, it's awful. And, and you guys, they, they say something and then they get a little bit of a backhand from their department or their faculty. They might say in a you know a coffee it's like i can't bring it up in a meeting but the person across the table who's saying that they're part of my tribe my nation my band they are not they are a white settler no i want to share a story real quick about that because sure. when i was when i was in uh undergrad here at uc san diego uh the president of the native american student association was a white man right and <laughs> he admitted he admitted to me that he doesn't know if he's native, his family's still looking into it. And I was like, maybe you shouldn't be the president of a native organization, student organization, you know? And like, as time went by, he started joking around going to powwows and then going to clan meetings on the same day. And I was like, excuse me, this is highly inappropriate, you know? And I made yeah. a big deal about it. I was like, this dude's talking about going to clan meetings. Clan that is meeting. not, Ooh. yeah. You know, I was like, this is not acceptable. And eventually I got so frustrated that the school was like, look, they banned me from going to any native function on campus, but they let him do it. And I was like, excuse me, this is the worst. This is the worst school ever, you know, and yeah. and it's hard. It's hard because, like, how can the school ban me from going to native functions, but let this you know, racist white guy that does that it's not native, go to, you know, become, you know, maintain being president of a student native org, you know, that's, I know that's egregious. Like I, I can't actually imagine the gall of anyone telling an indigenous person, no, you can't actually do what you do. Um, you know, you're banning Catholics from mass or something. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and letting in, um, an atheist to come in uh, and take communion or something, you know, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's not as an apt uh, analogy or metaphor, but it, that is, yeah, that's but fucking it, appalling it, too. It's, it's and here too, I mean, when it comes to like even standing up to fake tribes here in the U S these people will get their friends to harass you, to give yep. you death threats. And, you know, all I did in San Antonio when I lived in San Antonio was go around with other uh, activists, grassroots organizations and give like uh, lectures about our sovereignty, you know, our history of federal Indian law. And they didn't even like that. You know, they were telling people to come protest my stuff. They were they were like telling people to call me names like gatekeeper. And I, I, I'm a colonized native. And I was like, that's not even 
what I'm doing, I'm doing the opposite. I'm doing work to decolonize, to show people why our sovereignty is important, right? Why we have to make it stronger. But these people, you know, they, these fake tribes, and then they, they have a lot of money on top of that. They, yeah. they, you know, they push out any other native voices in the area and mm -hmm. they, you know, consolidate their own voices so they can get resources. Yeah, yeah, that's familiar. Like that happens up here too. Probably less less violence, but um, they do they do make our lives tough uh, working, and and they'll silence students as well. So if a student wants to point out a pretendian that's uh, in faculty or something, that student's going to have a little bit of a rough ride. But if your fellow faculty too is yeah you'll you'll get uh, ganged up on like the mob will come for you not for the pretendian they'll they'll close ranks and they'll protect the pretendian um i i can't even i don't know i it, it boggles my mind like it, it and it feels really ostracizing exclusive and it's just downright colonial right it's like protecting the white person's feelings who wants to make some sort of like what they are literally doing is is colonizing our identities now it's after we've taken everything else what's left oh you guys have worked so hard to raise the stature of your identity you know what i'm going to take that too right so now it's anything that's become of value or worth or utility that's like appreciated in value they they'll take yeah. And they'll move they'll move right into it and they'll get the institutional backing from it as well so that sort of happened at queen's university too so the legitimate indigenous folks there have been kind of silenced and shunned uh because they were online on twitter saying oh i, I you know i don't want to work with pretendians it's not fair they sh i shouldn't be thrust into situations like this and um so colleagues gave them a little bit of a backhand and other ones just kind of turn their back on and say, oh, how dare you Indians do this? But it's it's um, it's going off script from the failure of diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. They want they want your face on a on a brochure. Say, look at our friendly little Indian. Um, you know, we're Indian friendly here, but they don't want you to they want you to be seen and not heard. And I exactly. think that's what you that's what you kind of did, Rick. Um, is uh yeah is is the violence of the ins these institutions is they we don't want an uppity indian and and that's what you would become and and um yeah they'll they'll enact and carry out their colonial violences against you and put you back in your place they were like this indian is off the reservation and uh, it's like it, they they took our you know they took our land and our resources and the very last thing they want to take over is our identities yep. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so wild and I tell know. us how to view our own identities you know right yeah <laughs> i know then that's the worst too is like they're going to tell us now who we are again like it was bad enough that they started you know measuring our blood quantum you know doing all the racial configurations and documenting that and giving us numbers and enrollment cards and everything but when we you know adapt to it reconstitute ourselves around that political reality then uh they'll shift things around to benefit themselves and it yeah so a lot of it too is i think when we talk about individual motives and the psychology behind it 
uh, so much of it's about greed, securing positions that are earmarked and set aside for um, for you and I, but, uh, you know, failed white people who couldn't get a job want to step down and compete within the equity groups, the, uh, you know, the special targeted groups. And, um, yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't make it on their, on their own. So they go down to the historically dispossessed and disadvantaged to step on. So it's kind of a sad reflection upon themselves. Um, they, they just it just feels like being amongst thieves and liars, especially in the academy too, where integrity and honesty are the hallmarks. Like they are the lowest bar, and these people are lying about themselves. I couldn't lie about my credentials, but they they they'll lie about who they are to get grants and positions and advance through the ranks. I agree. So the, yeah. that, the only message I would you know to close this out, um, mm -hmm. I would say. To native people, um, you know, if somebody calls you a gatekeeper, that that shouldn't be a slur to you. You know, mm -hmm. we are, are the keepers our own of our own sovereignty, so we shouldn't see that as a slur, right? Yeah. I think you know people say that as you know non-natives or people that think they're native when they're not, so they use that as a slur. Don't take it as a slur, and don't be afraid to stand up against pretend Indians. You know. Yeah. So, do you have any message before we get off? Yeah, about the gatekeeping is, um, you know what? I every formal institution that underlies nations, they do have checks and criteria for matters of inclusion and exclusion. If you value yourselves as a political identity and not reduce yourselves to some sort of cultural flavor, um, rather that you are a national identity and your nation is attached to territory in which you exercise sovereign jurisdiction, which has been under attack for 500 years. If that, if you truly value yourselves as a member of a political community as comprising that nation, uh, then you would do what every other nation does is exercise the sovereignty of, of who constitutes it. And that, that requires, you know, what has otherwise been stigmatized as gatekeeping, but it's entirely legitimate. Every yeah. political community has been doing that since the beginning of time. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for coming on and I appreciate it. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thanks Rick. It's always uh, good. And uh, I'm glad, uh, glad to have the opportunity to come on here. Thank you. Don't, don't, uh, don't uh, um, leave the meeting yet. <laughs>